Hello everybody and welcome back to the shuttle pod. This is shuttle pod number 75. I'm Brian Drew and I am here with Matt Wright. Hey guys. Kayla Yacovino. Hey everybody. And Jared Whitley. Hey friends. I'm sorry it's been so long. Yeah, the gang's all here for a change. It's been a little while. Yeah. It's been work-related stuff has pulled us apart. All sorts of things have just been kind of crazy lately. So it's good that we got the gang back together for a podcast that we've been talking about doing now for a while. We've gotten people asking us about this episode is about the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture, the first Star Trek feature film. And not only is it a milestone for us to be doing our 75th uh, episode of the Shuttlepod, but it's fitting that we have come back to talk about the motion picture because that's how yes. it started. Yes, yeah. that's right. Really quickly, a little backstory. I guess, Jared, I guess it was like four or five years ago. Yeah. Jared had written an article for Trek Movie and had talked about the changeling in it and then mentioned that TMP was, you know, kind of a, a bad knockoff of it. And that raised my hackles a little bit. <laughs> mm, justifiably. Yes. And he and I had a little discussion about it over an email or a text. I forget what it was. And we finally said, you know what? Maybe we should, you know, try to do this as a conversation. And we were going to be at STLV, I think, a few weeks after that. We were like, you know what? Let's try to do it there. You know, we'll sit in front of the, our, We had no idea, thoughts about doing a podcast or anything. We just basically said, we're going to we'll put an turn an iPhone on in one of the hotel rooms and we'll just chat for like 10 minutes and talk about the pros and cons of TMP versus Changeling. And as anybody who's gone to STLV or any big convention will tell you, time tends to get away from you very quickly. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So we never we never got around to it. So we came home and we set ourselves up with a little Skype thing, and I think we did it over our earbuds. Like we did, we really made no effort. There was no production behind it. Yeah, it was it was low tech. It was low tech, and we put it out there, and we got good feedback. And that's when we got brought Kale into it and said, "Hey, we're thinking about maybe starting a whole podcast." She was excited about it, and that was it. Boom! That was the shuttle pod. That's it. Yep. And it's gone, you know, really well. I'm really, you know. I enjoy chatting with you guys. I can't believe it's been so many years. I know. I just know. just recently, I was re-listening to our first um, episode about Generations, because it was the anniversary mm. for Generations recently. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I went back and listened to it, and it hit me how long it had been, mostly listening to myself, because I was like, I sound different like i sound like i've aged since like i have you know it's been like you said four or five years or something and i was like wow yeah, Kel, really... you're, you're so old killer yeah. <laughs> but it's just i mean even the way i speak is a little bit different just you know as you grow older yeah, you just change sure. your your um you know little you keep growing speaking habits and everything and mm -hmm. i was amazed how di i didn't realize how much time had passed not only just chronologically but in terms of all of us as well yeah i'm kind of afraid to go back and listen to some of those early episodes <laughs> yeah it's yeah, it's hard to lose to you sometimes. Yeah, Just remember, yeah. Kayla, that time is not a hunter that is there to track you down. But <laughs> that's he's right. a companion who goes with you on the journey and on reminds journey, you to cherish right. every moment because it'll never come it'll again. Never come again. Yeah. Wow. So well said, Jared, and just off the cuff. It, you know, this I'm basically like Captain America. Like if you need an inspiring speech, I'm there day and night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we that was our little digression. Let us now get back to the program at hand. So, like I said, we're going to be doing the 40th anniversary of TMP. We thought we'd give you a little background on the movie first. 
Although if you're listening to this, you probably don't need a lot, but we'll we'll <laughs> we'll give you a quick little overview. Um, the movie came out December seventh, nineteen seventy nine. It had its world premiere the night before at the Smithsonian in mm-hmm. Washington, and its public debut was the following day. It was written by Harold Livingston with a story by Alan Dean Foster. You may know that name from the old Star Trek logs, which I think that's what they were called, right? The Star Trek logs that did the he did the adaptations of the animated series. Yeah, I can't remember now, but yes, that's that, that's but, what it was. Yeah, he yeah. did novelizations of the animated series. They were they were very good. Mm-hmm. He also ghost wrote the Star Wars novelization for George yes, Lucas. It is. And it was directed by Robert Wise, who was the legendary film director. He had been an editor. He had edited Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. Oh, wow. He directed The Sound of Music, yep. he, West Side Story. He had done other genre work with The Daily Earth Stood Still and The Andromeda Strain. Very, very talented guy. But we will get into all that later. Um, I will give you a very brief synopsis of what Star Trek The Motion Picture was about. <clears throat> After an 18-month refit process, the USS Enterprise is ready to explore the galaxy once again. When a huge, invincible cloud approaches Earth, Admiral James T. Kirk must assume command of his old ship in order to stop it. Crew members old and new face new challenges and must work together to triumph over the unknown. The human adventure is just beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to get your general reactions to the movie, guys. What you thought of it. Maybe if you remember where you were when you saw it the first time. That sort of thing. So, Kayla, let's start with you, the youngest one in the group. All right. Um, Wow, I definitely don't remember the first time I saw this movie. Uh, And I can definitely say that the older I get, the more appreciation I have for it. I think Mm -hmm. it was Mm because, like... I know you guys are going to rag on me for being the youngest one here, but it's a very slow film. It is. Mm-hmm. And that's why it has the nickname Star Trek, the motionless, the motionless <laughs> picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like this film a lot, but it's very slow, um, especially when you're used to the, the pacing of modern movies and television. And so when mm-hmm. I, when I was younger, I didn't, couldn't see past that at all. Even now I have to admit on my most recent watching, I fast forwarded through a couple of scenes, including the like I think approximately like five minute scene with Kirk um, and Scotty in the approaching the Enterprise and it's just sort of yeah. panning around the Enterprise yep. for about five yeah. minutes stuff yep. like that is is where it, it they if I find my attention span lacking but I think the older I get the more of appreciation I have for the rest of the film and the I think it's a really nicely packaged story about the human condition which is really the heart of what star trek is at its most powerful mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. yeah. and you know watching the, par- the parallels between spock's journey and v'ger's journey and i think this movie is a lot about spock oh yeah it is, it is and, very much yeah. oh it's, yeah. it's spock's Agreed. movie there's no question and hi- you know him on learning what embracing his human half and and appreciating that and and just the, them show sort of showcasing the strength of humanity and what gives us our humanity what makes us human so i love all those themes i think they're tied together really nicely and something that i hope we get to talk about a bit more sort of piggybacking on some recent work that brian did um, is the visual effects for this movie Mm. i did not have appreciation for the visual effects for this movie until one your interview brian with doug trumbull Mm -hmm. um where you where you talked to him about you know making the film um and then 
shortly thereafter, there was a presentation at Star Trek Las Vegas convention um, where they they showed a slideshow and told stories of how they did some of these practical visual effects because. Mm-hmm. You know, in my mind, it's it's all CG, just automatically. I'm just so not impressed because that's so commonplace now. Uh-huh. But that was all done on film. They filmed that stuff and then put it Bre- together. And it really transports you to another world. So yep. that, yeah. th- those are my sort of highlights. That's what I take away from this movie. Yeah, and it was also done under extreme duress, which we will get into later. Yes. Yeah, crazy timelines on things. Yep. Yep. Jared, what do you think of the film? Okay, so I, I don't necessarily want to re- repeat the same things that Kayla just said, but as as a young man who loved 2, 3, and 4 and the uh, ad- adventure there and the uh, um, the uh, uh, collegiality among our friends on the Enterprise and the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and then it gets flipped that the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many and sort of that loyalty and that love um, and the adventure of, of the the Holy Trilogy from two through four, mm-hmm. I was very, very difficult for me to get invested in one. It mm-hmm. was hard to not look it's at it and just, and just say, this was like a bad first draft. And then Nick Meyer and, and, and Harv Bennett came in and they said, no, we can do this better, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost kind of unfair to make that comparison between the two. Uh, the thing that's so remarkable about Motion Picture is this movie was made two years after Star Wars came out. And the only time the Enterprise shoots its weapons is, um, isn't there like a probe that they're shooting at? Or there's like... The, they they shoot at an asteroid. The asteroid. Yeah. 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 Photon so torpedoes. So this is not... They, they were not trying to... They, they obviously benefited from the zeitgeist. Like in, uh, in Leonard Nimoy's book, I Am Spock, He's got a chapter called Thank You, George Lucas, where he mm. basically says the reason that we were able to make this movie was because of the uh, was because of the success of Star Wars. But they weren't just trying to be a copycat like mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. many action-adventure movies were in the late 70s, right. early 80s. Like, I just rewatched the uh, the old Flash Gordon movie, and you can, oh, yeah. tell, you can tell in the pitch meeting that people were saying, this is going to be the next Star Wars or the next Superman, right? And yeah. how, right. how yeah. many pitch meetings in Hollywood that were genre films at that time were, were oh, she, the, our, our, our starlet, she's great. She's going to be the next Carrie Fisher or the next Margot Kidder. And this, they didn't do any of that at all. They just said Star Wars can or Star Trek can be very um, intellectual and thoughtful. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it's deeply embedded in the successes of the American space program. And mm-hmm. we're going to do that. And the fact that this movie was made is amazing right yeah i agree and i'm amazed that that story got greenlit yep. seriously yeah seriously. <laughs> it's true it's true yeah. i don't think it would today not at no, all oh no no, it no, it no, no. yeah no, no it wouldn't which is sad it is sad yep. that wouldn't yeah anyway so those, those those are those are my thoughts okay what about you matt uh yeah um I, I a little bit like jared i of course always as, as a kid gravitated towards the two three four you know trilogy but at the same time because you know the motion picture always existed for me on vhs like for me you know as a kid of like the late 80s and the early 90s but mm-hmm. it would just always existed on vhs and so I, I but also as a kid hungry for all star trek i i didn't really like think it was 
bad or anything. It was just like it, it was more Star Trek to consume, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was it was definitely like in my rotation of things that like I rented from like, you know, the video store and I still liked it. I just didn't like it quite as much as say, you know, two or three, right? But I always did like it. Um I think the slower parts didn't really bother me because I'd kind of do something in the background while it got a little slow. Like, I'd gra- <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, seriously, like I, I mean, I was right. I'd go grab my compendium and flip through something about how TMP was like made or something while it got slow. Or I'd like mm. grab, you know, like or whatever. I don't know. Depending on what time this was, maybe I'd go grab my TNG Playmates action figures and like mess around with them for a little bit while it was a little slower. And then my attention would go back to like, you know, when it was, so it was just always there. And I never really like thought, Oh my God, this is so boring. It just sort of was what it was. Right. Like it's the film that it was. And if I kind of put it on the background, that's fine too. You know, like that's just sort of the way I approached it. Mm. I totally see why people call it the motionless picture. That's a little mean. Though, as we all know, it does have ab pacing <laughs> problems. Very acknowledged. It very the much theatrical cut does. Yes. Yeah, the theatrical very, cut does. Very much does. acknowledged, and they attempted to rectify some in the director's edition. So there are very good reasons for that, which we will get into. There are, and they're mostly unfortunate, sort of behind the scenes reasons for the pacing. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I've always liked it. Uh, for me personally, I've also just always been intrigued by the motion picture. Um, for reasons I can't always put my finger on, but I know somewhat is because partially it's because there's a hell of a lot of stuff out there from the motion picture. There's merch all over the place about it because they really thought it was going to be something like amazing for like kids and like, you know, kids and adults alike. And so I, I grew up going to the library and seeing like, the Star Trek, the motion picture, make your own costume book was actually like Mm -hmm. in the reference like section of like my local library. And it's just like Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff has always like intrigued me because there's all this stuff like around it uh, as if it should have been a bigger deal than it really turned (laughs) out to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, but it's always intrigued me because there's all this stuff sort of around it. There were like trading cards, there was all sorts of stuff. And like you know so it's intriguing it's like well what what happened you know in a way it's kind of a what happened and not even so much of a what happened but just it's just interesting like where was all this stuff and look at all this stuff and so like one of the coolest things i picked up like i think is cool that i picked up at stlv a few years ago was a a nice sort of sealed you know pristine condition of the motion picture pop-up book for kids Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's you know and it's kind of and it's a hoot like i had that yeah it's it's a hoot like i always wanted to have a copy as a kid and so there i go indulging you know my inner eight-year-old or whatever right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i found a nice copy exactly i found a nice like copy totally untouched basically for you know sealed up for years and yeah i mean and it's it's a it's cool like there's it that's the thing like you we will never we never really saw merch like that again really especially through any of the 80s movies and stuff it was never quite like that again and it's so so it's just intriguing because you know i don't know if it really earned the all this merch that they threw at it but it's around and it's just interesting yeah interesting piece of history you know like Hmm. 
I'm curious to hear from you guys picking up on that, what Matt's saying about the merchandise and the especially particularly the the um, merchandise for kids. It doesn't seem it seems like a very adult film to it, me. It yeah, is. It is. So that's it's, why it's, it's, it's so probably weird. one of the most adult it is. It's Star Trek adult. projects of of them all, really. That's right. And that's same... why I think it's so funny. It's so incongruous that they were like, no, but this is great for kids, you know? Like, we're going to. But at the same time, you know, both of you guys are saying, oh, when I was a kid, I wanted this pop up book. And Brian, you said you had it. So when you were kids, you were into the film, right? Sure. But, you know, like, like I was saying, it's it's just, it's more Star Trek. So, like, why wouldn't I like it? At least, at least to some degree, you know what I mean? Was like, that the main. It wasn't like there wasn't. Because I'm curious to know what about it drew you to it as a kid well the spock walk was always really like crazy and cool yeah. sure. be, oh yeah like whether i totally understood what was going on or not it was always really like fascinating i uh, i loved vulcan and i loved the spock you know like with the scraggly hair you know like not mm-hmm. our, not like i knew like this wasn't our spock like he had gone off to do his own thing like that was always even as a kid like i got that he was sort of an outcast he was doing his own thing okay like that wasn't that was intriguing to me even as a kid and enough to beg your mom to take you to mcdonald's to get the <laughs> star trek that, the motion that's picture a question i guess for brian i wasn't actually alive when the motion picture came out I, yeah so i had happy meals from tmp I had several of them. Awesome. And that's the other cool. thing to go back to the merch that we should just call out because we're talking about it is Star Trek the Motion Picture was the very first like motion picture tie-in happy yes, meal toy, like themed happy really? meal. Ever, of any ever, movie. Ever. Any movie. Yeah. First one. So again, they really thought this thing was gonna work for kids, which like you guys were just like you're just saying, I don't know why they thought that. It's not really a kid's like a super. Yeah, there's kid nothing movie. about the the plot of it or anything else that would draw a kid in. No, it, not at all. It, it drew you in, Brian. It did, but I was already, all right. Should I just get into what I how I felt about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just okay. go ahead, just do it. Yeah, I saw the movie in a theater in Queens, New York, when I was six. It was December '79. It might have been opening weekend, maybe the weekend after. I'm not sure. I was six years old. I had only started watching the series earlier that year. Maybe I had started becoming interested in it. Um, I did not understand the movie when I first saw it. Sure. I mean, the ending is very metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Like trying to explain to it, transcendence and all this other stuff to a little kid is. My father told me. My father said he goes. I tried to explain it to you, but because <laughs> I barely understood it myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, but I was enraptured by the visuals. The Enterprise yes. on the big screen is. That that I mean I kill I know you know and a lot of people don't like that sequence when Kirk and Scotty are flying over the ship. It's one of my favorite parts of the movie. I, I understand why it would be, even though it's not for me. I totally can get, especially I, I've never seen it on a big screen. That, so. That's the thing. The bigger the screen, really, like the more sort of uh, in you know enrapturing it is, right? The more yeah. you sort of get you know taken away with it. It's like starship yeah. Starship porn. Yeah, it's Starship. It's, porn, it's, right. it, it is the absolute last word, Starship. Porn. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, <laughs> but it's got Jerry Goldsmith's great score in there oh, too. And yeah. that that, yes. that music is so good that I really don't care if he's, if they're wandering around the Enterprise for ten minutes. I really don't. <laughs> the, music is, the music, Jerry Goldsmith, and we can get into that later too. But he carries whole sections of this movie. Yes, yep. he does. Yeah, yep. all by yeah. all by himself almost. Yep. But anyway, I love the visuals. Um, I didn't, like I said, understand all of it, but there was enough going on with the visual effects and the Enterprise looking all different and new and shiny that it kept me interested. And then right after that movie came out, like going to what into what Matt was saying, there was a ton of merch. 
Mm-hmm. Um, novelist Gene Roddenberry's novelization was there. Marvel Comics did their adaptation right. of the film, and then they they did a kind of a semi a year and a half run of the of a comic book that took place right after TMP. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had like a lot of things to like grab onto and like you know learn more about, and it drew me further and further in. But yeah, it, it, it was a it was definitely an odd movie to try to sell to somebody my age. I mean, that movie was rated G when it came out. Yeah, that's right. it's the that's only right. Star Trek movie that's G. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's and, no uh, reason to rate it higher just because the no, content is cerebral. It's, it's, it's true. Yeah. yeah, there's there's nothing objectionable in there. No, and it's not. Yeah. And it's not really. Even though Viju is kind of like this cold, icy thing, it's not really creepy or anything like no, that. No, not at all. Uh, yeah, like 2001 is creepy at times, and. But like, which is a good analog to TMP. But mm-hmm, like, this mm-hmm. is, but TMP never gets that quite that cold. I don't think. No. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I I think it is one of the best Star Trek films. I've always, I've felt that since maybe it has I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that I saw it as a child. But I <laughs> think it is one of the most undiluted visions of Gene Roddenberry's idea of mm. what Star Trek is. Mm-hmm. There are like maybe two or three of them in the entire. 53 years of Star Trek that where you could point to and say, okay, that's kind of what Gene was thinking all along. The cage is another example of that. Sure. And probably encounter at Farpoint. And there are good and bad in all three of those projects. You know, stereotypical things about Star Trek, maybe it gets a little too serious, a little too heady for itself at times. And But I feel like this is one of those three projects. Like this is Gene, the movie didn't ultimately turn out the way he wanted and he took some blame for it mm-hmm. not always justified but i do think that the, the story that he was put out there was a story he wanted out there there are themes in this movie that despite how the movie may have turned out those themes are inherently in the film and those are definitely things gene wanted in there yeah and we can get into the ideas of, of some of the themes that are in the movie the, to me the movie is about identity sure mm-hmm. and who you are there are three there, there are three characters in this movie having existential crisis oh yeah obviously being the big the big example of it beecher has Mm -hmm. no idea it has all this knowledge it doesn't know what to do with it doesn't know what it's supposed to be and then of course you have spock who's going undergoing almost the same exact thing Mm -hmm. and to some degree this is also an issue that kirk is grappling with. oh of course yep it's a little more dialed down with Kirk because when it doesn't go throughout the entire movie it doesn't his arc doesn't really span the whole film this is very much a Spock film. Definitely. It explores a lot of heady topics. It is easily the hardest science fiction of, of all the Star Trek films. Oh, yep. yeah. Easily, yeah. I don't know. I just feel... I wish they could have... Maybe not exactly with this tone and pacing from there on out, but I wish they had kept a certain kind of headier mindset about where to take the film series after this. Sure. It, like I felt like it, it they in Harv Bennett. This is not to knock the Wrath of Khan is obviously a classic of the genre, but like Harv's idea was simply to roll it back to to some degree to the way the original series was, and TMP was an attempt to take the original series and make it something a little more sophisticated. Right. So it would have been interesting to see where it would have gone had they kept that idea of a more sophisticated, which is a kind of a proto version of TNG. Because the motion picture has, the, there's a lot of things in TMP that kind of ultimately yes, show up again in TNG. In, right down to the theme are. song. Yeah. The theme yeah. song. Yeah. The dynamic between Riker and Ilya. 
Uh-huh. Between Riker yeah. and Leah. You see what I just did? <laughs> <laughs> you did Decker it. Riker and Ilya and Riker yeah. and Troy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just the general pacing. TNG is a much more methodical show. And its pacing is down Especially in the first yeah. few seasons. Yeah. 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 It's a much more leisurely pace. And it's a more, you know, headier, more adult version. So it, I feel like this movie had a lot going for it. And it, that's probably what keeps drawing me to it. Awesome. And hope I didn't ramble to fit you. No, no, no. Brian, this is your show, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, just, just like other people have expressed, I think especially the older I get, the more I enjoy some of those themes and i can of course start to like understand and, and maybe identify you know uh-huh. with some of those yep themes. I, th- I think it took me to to be somewhere you know like a teenager to really because gee but boy you're angsty about your own identity as a teenager yeah. of course right yeah. so i think it took me until being about a teenager where i was starting to really like catch on you know to like no there's more to this like you know than yes it's kind of slow whatever but there's there's more to it here there's some intriguing things and yeah, the notion of why am I here? What was I meant to be? I mean, it's, at some point in your life, you're going to ask yourself that. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Is exactly. this all there is? Mm. Yeah. Is this all there is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they articulate it really well, and I really don't feel like they beat you over the head with it, that they have different characters say it in different ways. Mm-hmm. The whole you know, logic versus emotion thing, and is it is not the pursuit of knowledge all that there is? Right. Spock has a line in the movie, which is a watershed moment for the character, when he says, "Logic and knowledge are not enough." That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when he holds and he holds Kirk's hand, yep. he says, "This simple feeling is beyond yeah. Beecher's comprehension." I love okay. that moment. And 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 can I think this is uh, TMP is critical for showing Spock's arc through the whole oh, yeah. movie series, very, very and, much. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the the two other lines that this reminds me of is there's remember in um at, in Star Trek Six. When he's talking to, uh, 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 come on, Valeris, and he says to her, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end of it, right? Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, then and this the, is where he starts to figure that out, is right here. Yeah. Exactly. Then mm-hmm. then the yep. other line that I absolutely love in Star Trek V is when he's talking to Cybok, and he says, I am not the, the, the outcast boy you left on Vulcan so many years ago. I have found my yeah. place, right? Yes. I know who yes, I am. Yep. Exactly, yeah. There's this great through line that starts here. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It starts yeah. here. Yeah. 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 It's a great arc for him. He starts the movie. And he's doing something which I consider very stupid at the beginning of the movie. He's trying to exercise the whole half of himself. Yeah. And he finally realizes the folly of that. It's a wonderful, wonderful arc. And I know Leonard Nimoy had a lot of problems with the film, but he can't argue with the material the character had in the film. <laughs> no. Right. It is Spock's movie completely. Yeah. yeah. God, that must have been a bear to shoot. It was just like I'm just thinking about even just like the spacewalk scene. Well, and what's this is a little behind the scenes part, but they essentially did that spacewalk scene two different ways. So that poor guy was in like a wetsuit rig for like so many days oh God. in one version or another. It, it sucked from yeah everything we've heard. Yeah, we can we, we can mention that really quickly. That that yeah that was shot twice. That essentially in order twice, to indicate yeah. in order to indicate what a messed up production and post-production process this movie had they shot a thing a whole different sequence at the infamous point. memory wall the sequence. infamous memory wall sequence yes. which is a completely rescripted scene it's completely plays out completely different than what's in the movie now where spock still leaves the enterprise 
and goes outside, but Kirk follows him out immediately. And they both go on this journey inside Beezer together. Huh. And they, and they gets, kind of go through it. It's not a Death Star trench, but it kind of feels like that. But it's like, <laughs> it's supposed to be, it's a trench that's supposed to, in theory, like you can see, no, you can't see, you can envision in your mind's eye why they thought this would be cool. There's absolutely no way in 1979 that they could have pulled this off today with CGI and stuff. They absolutely could pull yeah. it off. No yeah. way in hell practically, like, could they have pulled this off back then? Yeah, they were, they were have like floating sensor swarms like going yeah, on and I stuff mean, like that. They were attempting to do kind of like, you know, a matrixy thing of like you're now in the machine, like the living, you know, the living computer thing. And they're yeah. gonna try to like embody it somehow. Totally didn't work. Look like crap. Work. Everyone was miserable doing it. Yeah, it was it was, it was really awful. Bad. Yeah. And like Doug Trumbull happened to be at that point, I think he was consulting on the film. And just like basically hanging out, and he said, I, "You can't do this. Just he, stop he, shooting." He pulled Robert shooting. Wise to the side and just said, "This is yeah. not. This is just not going to work. Yeah, just, just stop." stop. Yeah. Wow. And then so they they put that whole scene aside. That was not reshot until over the summer, right before the movie came out. And Trumbull shot that by himself with Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. So he came up with the Spock walk that we know of in a hurry, basically. Yeah. So that does the same. It has the same. The net effect of like if it is the same, but it's very different and much easier to do, to do. Than and it's more to. appropriate that it was only Spock. Yes, agree. Yes, there was no course. reason for Kirk to be there. None at all. Well, yeah, that and would again, be it weird. was. It was well, you know, it was that whole we got to throw both stars a bone. So he's right. and there was and there was an a, and there was a quote unquote action sequence in the original shoot because right. what happens Kirk is, is, is that swarmed. Kirk gets yeah. attacked by a sensor swarm that starts to crush him inside of his suit and. Spock turns around because Spock is annoyed that Kirk basically Followed. is following him and mm-hmm. like hesitates to help him oh. and finally pulls out a phaser and phasers the swarms off of him and they go on the trip together. Yeah, it would have added an interesting little layer to the fact that Spock really is on the ship for selfish reasons. Yeah. Right. Like he, yeah, I mean, he's there and he's returned to his post, but he's he's off doing his own thing. Right. Because um, Vijay anyway. was calling him, so that's that. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. right. Anyway, the, so that's what a mess that whole scene was. And they were a totally different version of spacesuits that were even more uncomfortable. And yikes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we can get into that now if you want about yeah. how the, you know, well, the did behind we, let, the scenes. Maybe we should finish all the themes, though, before we really. Okay. Sure. Sure. Let's just hit on the last couple of themes if, if you want. Well, sure. What, what would you like to so say? So I think, did we, I mean, I think we sort of just covered logic versus emotion, but uh-huh. we could just say that that was another fantastic, you know, grappling thing. Yeah. That comes up. And then one that's a little more pressing in a way, and I think maybe even makes TMP more relevant now, is, of course, that, well, what is V'ger? I mean, V'ger is, in essence, like the the buzzword that everyone loves today, AI, right? I mean, mm. V'ger is this sort of early idea of a sentient machine, right? So it's just, yep. that's what we think of as, like, AI but thankfully is not the cliche Terminator kind. <laughs> That's becoming a cliche. Matt, Matt, what are you referring to? I don't know. I, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> you can listen to our other podcast to figure that one out if you don't know. <laughs> um, and then, of course, what at the very end, what which, you know, this whole mind-blowing thing that like Brian and I were talking, you know, we've talked about wrapping our heads around as kids it's really hard to wrap your head around. hell it's still weird to wrap your head around as an adult in some ways is when decker decides to join with vija of course like that's the whole thing that futurists have been talking about e- even since the 70s but especially now people like ray kurzweil call that like the singularity you know where essentially like humans and machines are nearly 
you know, indistinguishable, right, from one another. They've merged in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty, like, heady sci-fi topic and and still something that is, you know, still something that we all sort of think about in some form or another. Again, like, The Matrix came out in 1999 and kind of, you know, took a stab in that vein, too. But here's a movie from 1979 talking about it. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. The ending the ending of the movie is a very Star Trek ending. It is because instead of being I mean, it's great because instead of being something uh grim, right? Some some kind of weird dominant yeah. new, you know, AI species that wants to yeah. dominate humans. No, that's not what happens at all. Yeah. A, a sort of a beautiful new life form that transcends yeah. itself is born and goes on its way, you know, like it has yeah. that's it. Instead you know, of we, them being like, Oh, it's a threat, blow it up. That's right. There's no, no, not threat. No, not at all. No threat at all. Yeah. So. Which will have a lot of foolish human emotions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. All right. Well, that's just the themes. I just want to make sure we touched on those. And then, no, yeah, no, no. That, that's a good one. Let's that, get into that. the nitty gritty because behind the scenes is just, I mean, we don't have to spend forever on this, but it is too darn interesting not to at least talk about yeah, it a little bit. You, you can't really talk about this movie without talking about the problems it had. <laughs> it had, yeah. Yeah. To make a long story short about this movie's pre-production is that I think Gene was brought back on the lot in 1975 after Star Trek had become kind of a syndicated hit and the animated series, you know, right. had come out and there was, you know, Paramount was making a nice chunk of change. Yeah, Migo, Migo the dolls were selling like hotcakes. Trek was a thing in the mid-70s is mm-hmm. the question. So they kept, uh, so they put Gene back, literally back in his old office. Mm-hmm. And... He started coming up with ideas for various iterations of a Star Trek film, or occasionally it was a movie of the week, or also there were very various iterations of it, including one that was going to be directed by uh, Phil Kaufman called Planet of the Titans. Yep. Which had a design of the Enterprise that was done by Ken Adam and Ralph McQuarrie, which is the basis for what the Discovery looks like now. Right. Hmm. Right. Um, so that didn't happen. They decided they didn't want to pursue a feature. Then they decided, oh, we're, we're going to start our own TV network. Paramount decided they were going to do their own TV network and they were going to use Star Trek as like the the uh, flagship show. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea was to bring back the entire original cast, put them on a refitted Enterprise and, and basically just try to redo a version of TOS. Um, Paramount got cold feet about doing the, the TV service and that coincided with Star Wars coming out and Close Encounters right after yep, it. Yep, yep. And they just said, you know what? We're going to bag this. We're going to make a feature. Now, all the development that had gone on since 1975 went through one budget line. This is what's insane. Yeah. At Paramount. It was all so rolled every, up together. So, so, yeah. So, TMP was probably $5 million over budget before they shot anything. <laughs> Because all all these aborted projects got pushed into its budget line. Hmm. Yeah, it's so the movie it's crazy. was already yeah. So so anyway, they took the original pilot script for the the aborted TV series, and it was called In Thy Image. They said, okay, we're gonna make, we're gonna take this, and we're gonna blow it up into a feature. And they started. They began work on it. They were having trouble with the ending and a bunch of other things during the course of it. But like meanwhile, the cast had already been signed. The sets had been built. They said, finally, at one point, I think the, about a third of the script was completely finished. And they were like, all right, you know what? You guys got to start shooting. Like, the clock is running. 
Well, then we should say Paramount did something which was really stupid, quite frankly, which is they did a thing that nobody does anymore, which is they pre-sold to theaters the movie. So they actually guaranteed the movie theater chains by, you know, X date, so December 7th, 1979, will deliver you a product. And so they Paramount took money for it. So they pre-sold it, which means come hell or high water, they have to have something. So it's it's crazy. Anyway, so yeah. So anyway, they started shooting. They had trouble with the visual effects while they were shooting with practical effects and whatnot. They were rewrites constantly. Gene Roddenberry and the screenwriter of credit, Harold Livingston, were sending different drafts to the set every day, sometimes every hour. And kind of at a war with each other, too, about yeah. details and changes and stuff. It's not yeah. great. <laughs> so the production was running very slow to begin with. And when they finally wrapped the film the principle of photography that's when they truly realized how much trouble they were in with the visual effects they had hired a firm called robert paramount the studio itself had hired a firm called robert abel and associates who were who were an inventive bunch but they had only done tv commercials very clever and inventive tv commercials but tv commercials nonetheless and they were going they had some very ambitious ideas for how they wanted to make through the effects and this that and the other thing probably way too ahead of their time bottom line is they could they barely did get anything done and it came to the point where they were something like six to eight months out from release and they had nothing for visual effects right and required doug trumbull who were the studio really originally wanted to do the film but he didn't want to do it they required him to come back into the fold and bring john dykstra who you might know from star wars he helped george lucas basically help help him found ILM and the two of them split the effects and they had two effects houses working 24 seven for like six months. Yeah. It's insane. The, the stories from this period of time are just crazy. Yeah. And bottom line is like it, it, they were cutting, they were dropping footage into the movie 10 days before it was due to be released. They were scoring the film, I think up to seven days, maybe even less Neil bulk will probably have my ass for saying that. Um, <laughs> Um, something, but like up to maybe a week or a little bit more, they were still scoring the film before it came yeah, out. They were still crazy tweaking stuff. the score. Yeah, it's crazy. So the reason, you know, you guys were talking about the pacing of the movie earlier and how it's like lethargic in spots. The reason that is, especially when it gets to the V'ger stuff, is because they didn't have the footage until the last minute. So they basically cut in, they had leader in between reaction shots of the cast. <laughs> And they were just, when the effects would come in, they would pick them up and drop them in the movie hmm. and move on. So they were basically, yeah, I mean, during the live action part of all this, they're basically just like hedging and, and just assuming that certain things would go certain places and they do longer takes than maybe necessary in case they needed to like, you know, figure out what went where. And like, it was, it, it's Yeah, yeah you have people crazy. saying obvious things like when, the, when, when, remember when the oh, asteroid yes. blows up? Yeah. And Chekhov goes, oh, we're out of it. I'm like, yeah, we obviously were out of it. But like, they had but to see, they have weren't sure. They weren't sure they weren't if there sure was going to be an effect. Be right, they weren't sure. And Sula goes, oh, the new so screen's crazy hell. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. the cra- yeah. crazy stuff like that was happening. Yeah. Um, this, kind of, this kind of reminds me of what it was like when I was on my college newspaper of just sort of last minute craziness <laughs> to make sure yeah. the paper got out every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah but, but if Paramount had not delivered Star Trek The Motion Picture for December 7th, the studio was in danger of like going bankrupt. Wow. Yeah, they, they whatever this practice was, I forget what they call it now. Blind it, booking. Yes, blind booking. Thank you. It actually essentially leaves them open to lawsuits from every major chain if they didn't deliver on time. So they were basically like, 
well, we either get the pants suit off of us and tied up in court for forever and massive fees like yeah. you know piled up or we just rush this thing yeah. and we delivered on time so they and, basically and Ma- just went okay yeah and michael <laughs> eisner said who was the who was running the studio at the time said that if it has to go with black leader on the front of it it goes out with black leader on the front of it and they did <laughs> the overture plays over black uh-huh it's true they were supposed to make like a star field they didn't even have it was supposed it. to be a star field yeah, they didn't have yeah. Time for it. so it is one of the most frightening post-productions it may be the the scariest post production in the history of Hollywood. Oh wow! <laughs> that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, I mean, either. I mean, <laughs> the 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 stories you hear from people who worked on this, the massive amounts of burnout, the the crazy sort of fights that went on, last minute changes. It sounds awful to actually be someone trying to produce this movie. <laughs> right. So the next part of that story then is, you know, how did it do? Did it because it's so much right. is hanging on the success right. of this film. Did it deliver? It ended up costing when you added in all the other, you know, the overhead from all the other productions. It ended up costing forty-five million dollars in nineteen seventy-nine, which made it. It broke the Guinness World Record for most expensive movie ever made. Um, I think Cleopatra held the title before that. So I, th- I think the ultimate real budget of the movie, the move for the movie itself, was about thirty-five million. And yeah, in those days. Movies were big movies were being made for a third of that. Right. I mean it was way out of control. Like it right. was just it was it was a well, runaway production. And then the weird the weird counterpoint to that though is as far as like when the box office receipts though, it actually its opening weekend did quite well as as the box office like, you know, goes. It was yeah, a it was record, record for the weekend at the time. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, as we, as Brian has like, you know, recounted before, they threw in every aborted project from 1975 on into this thing's bottom line. So there's no way in hell, even a successful opening weekend would, you know, pay them back for this. And so Paramount considered this like, you know, kind of shitty and kind of a failure in a sense. And Gene, Gene's head kind of got put on the chopping block for it among other people. But, and so it's crazy because at the same time it breaks records, but it could never be good enough because of all the stuff they just kind of rolled into it. (laughs) It's, it's crazy. It's, yeah. it's it's unfair yeah. to the movie, of course. That's yeah. really what it is. It is. Yeah. And it's on and Gene Roddenberry took, I think, more of a rap for it than he should have. Oh they yeah, there were they blamed were... Gene for the budget going out of control. Yeah. And, blamed, and that's I'm not, not true. Say that Gene's a complete saint, but like No. There yeah. were there were a number of high powered you know, high powered people that allowed this to happen this way. And Gene, it yeah. wasn't just Gene, yeah. you know. So. Gene did not hire the effects group. Gene didn't do a bunch of things. That were, right. uh, things were not his fault. But Gene is, you know, kind of the outspoken figurehead and kind of a pain in the ass at times, you know, given what he wants to, you know, and what he thinks should happen. So the studio just went, hey, it's kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. <laughs> Let's blame him. You know what I mean? It just kind of became a cool. We'll just blame him. See ya. Like. Which is why right. he got no real say on any other feature film since then. Right. You know, right. he got a nice little title and they didn't really have to take it as notes. He could provide notes, but they didn't have to listen to him. And it's a whole can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. So anyway, it grossed $82 million in the States or worldwide, I think. And, yeah, it's worldwide. And if you adjust that for inflation, that's $454 million now. Holy crap. So it, again, <laughs> this movie like earned some good money. <laughs> yeah, it's the second, the only other Star Trek movie that grossed more than is Into Darkness. Mm-hmm. So it made money. The studio 
was off the hook. It, they they were also making good money. They got a they had a broadcast deal with ABC for the movie. They caught they got ten million dollars from that. And oh right, yeah, yep. the merch and stuff like that. So I mean, they ended up recouping their investment and some. Mm-hmm. But they after that though they were extremely skittish about spending a lot of money on Star Trek movies, which is why the Wrath of Khan was made for like nothing. <laughs> right. Why they they the regular one is just the space station flipped upside down, flipped over. Correct. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think it, I think the Wrath of Conquest twelve million dollars to make. Yeah, holy it's crazy. So it's crazy. Yeah. So the 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 nature of the film and the nature of the film's problems caused it basically the thing that ended up in movie theaters is largely a rough cut. Yeah, and I mean, like that, like Robert Wise can always considered like what was rushed out of the theaters. He never thought figured called that his final cut. Like he never considered it that. He yeah. always felt it was a rough cut. Yeah. So. Yeah, the movie never got sneak previews in front of an audience so they could adjust things. It never got reshoots that it would have probably done. Like the movie just didn't get the the love and care of a picture of that scale should have gotten because of the nature of the problems they were having. Yeah, I mean, there's there's stories of you know prints literally still wet from the printers you know because this yeah is oh fu- yeah this is 35 yeah, millimeter film yeah, yeah. like this is a good yeah, being, this is a good story yeah, yeah being this. rushed to the premiere and yeah you know robert wise incomplete the, the movie, at that yeah the movie was the movie was premiering at the smithsonian it's where the cast was there gene yep everybody was there at the smithsonian on december 6th robert wise took whatever reels he had on the plane with him yep straight from the lab slept with a prince under his bed and hand delivered it to the projectionist <laughs> because they were, that's that's they were, how late they were, they were. That's how late they integrating were. everything. Yeah, they were there were there were prints that were that weren't allowed to dry out in the lab. They were picked up, put in cases, and sent to the theaters and dried out while they were being projected. Holy, it's crazy! In a, in a movie it's, it's crazy. Yeah, that not only should that movie not have gotten out in time, it's amazing that movie is coherent. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, that's the thing, right? It's it's kind of amazing. It's a great credit to a lot of the people. That, so I think that, I think uh, one yeah. of the I was gonna say this is a good segue. I think to Jerry Goldsmith because one of the reasons why this feels so coherent i think is he was uh really smart in his score and he was you know scoring and rescoring and tweaking his his music this whole time as he'd see stuff or as they would make changes he was really smart and like he wrote his scores to be edited down like they were you know he wrote them in such a way that a lot of them could be cut cut shorter or run longer mm-hmm. if necessary when the final edits were made, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is smart. It's really cool. Yeah. And it's, as we said, it carries the movie in many places. Yeah. And, and Robert Wise had warned him because he knew, he knew going into it that he like, knew that it was, yeah. He, he goes, you're going to have to cover up a lot of stuff. You're going to be, you know, you're going to have to carry a lot of things on your own. And he did. It's one of the Star Trek motion picture is one of the great motion picture scores ever. I agree. I, I love almost all of it. Yeah. If you go into like a top 100 list of greatest movie scores of all time, it's on it. And the thing is, so much of it is of the the tone is in the theme, uh, is in the vein of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, as you've mentioned. Oh, yeah. But, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No but question. They, um, Kubrick just used classical music for that. Goldsmith had to come up with all of this on his own. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, but he was using a lot of exotic sounds. He used a thing called a blaster beam. Mm-hmm. But those sounds that signify Vija, that's a giant metal, I forget, beam. And you hit it with artillery shells. That's crazy. And it, and, it, and it produced that sound. And Goldsmith, and the guy who who created that, 
was Craig Huxley, who was on the original series as an actor. Mm-hmm. He played Peter <laughs> Kirk in Operation Annihilate, Kirk's nephew, and he was in and and the Children Shall Lead, I believe. So he grew up and he contributed this and Goldsmith, when he heard the sound this thing could make, he was like, Oh my God, I have to use this. And so he started incorporating those, those, those you know, those sounds. Crazy. You hear, yeah. Thing. That, yeah. That's the blaster beam. Yeah. Um, so Jerry tried all sorts of, there's a lot of experimental and exotic things going on in that score. So it's, it's, it definitely helps sell V'ger. There's no oh, question. Yeah. Big mm-hmm. time. And there's some beautifully romantic stuff in there. That, you know, the, the overture Ilea's is theme. a beautiful... Arlea's yeah. theme, which is the overture of the movie the at the beginning, yeah. is, is beautiful. And then, of course... And, I, and the main theme, obviously, <laughs> yeah. that we used later on for, that for became TNG. Yeah, that became quite well known. Okay, then, yeah. th- then the other one that's important to mention is the Klingon theme. Heck yeah. Yep. Love yep. that theme. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff that carried on from this. Yeah, the Klingon theme, I think, really, I mean... Even now, you see people, you know, even new composers, like, sort of pick up on it and echo it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even now, it's yeah. it's it's so iconic for Klingon. And he used it, and he used it again. When, oh, of course, he did. Contact yeah. too. Yeah, yeah when, that's, when, that's for oh, Worf. When you see yeah. Worf, Worf, he plays it yeah. right away when you see yeah. Worf. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I remember I was watching the Winter Olympics once, and I think it was Christy Yamaguchi was skating and I, I, the sound that she was skating to sounded so familiar. And then I realized, wait, that's the Klingon song. She's skating to the no Klingon way. song. No way, what? Really? It, it, it may have been somebody else. I just remember watching the Olympics and, and they were playing the Klingon theme. I thought it was so wow. cool. Why wouldn't you ever play cool. this song if you have the opportunity to? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone that's should go really set cool. it as their ringtone right now. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, and let's just say one other thing is is that we didn't really talk about about the making of is the models are fantastic in this. The Klingon yeah. cruisers got a huge upgrade from the, yep. the original series. Yeah. They look amazing, and they just that just goes hand in hand with that theme for me. Is that huge close up of like those battle cruisers? You know, yep. The movie opens. Yeah, the opens. With how that it opens shot. with it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing about this movie is that this is one of the few instances, up until the Abrams movies, this is one of the few instances where Star Trek had all the resources of a major film studio dedicated to it. Mm. So right, right. There was got, real got, money. Yeah, I mean, the Enterprise model cost a million dollars. It was hugely expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a million bucks, like, in 79 money. So, yeah. I mean, that think about that. paint job, That pearlescent paint job that was on it, like... Yeah, so cool. There was, there was a, you know, it was an A, you know, you call them A movies, B movies, you know, A, you know, B movie is a bad, you know, kind of subpar movie. Trek movies ultimately ended up being like not totally, I would call a big A movie. They're kind of like B plus movies, you know, what I mean? <laughs> a, a minus. Yeah, no, sure. they, they are. No, it's given, true. They, they were never they're... given the enough. They're never given enough money to really never like, enough do to big right. things. But this one was, and then obviously with the, <laughs> the bad robot movies, they they were able to do that again. Yeah. So that's why you know this this model that model of the Enterprise got a lot of use. <laughs> you know, it got got beat up over the course of six movies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a lot, tremendous amount of detail in those models that you would only get if you had a big budget to dedicate to it those models are gorgeous that to the end of that the refit of the enterprise to me is still the best version of the enterprise that's ever been do you mean outside inside or both uh you can argue the the inside but the, the, outside. In, the inside needs a little help i think like, I depending agree. on which version yeah because we yeah yeah, yeah this version i think it's so funny like they definitely get rid of this immediately in star trek 2 but like the uh 
the was it like like rust colored like padding on the walls in some of the hallways yeah. in, in it's TMP. Very it's very well, seventy. And then the 70s. other hallways are just yeah. very sterile, metallic, yes, completely metallic, yeah. and it's like, ugh. Yeah. Most of those corridors though survived to be on TNG. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, you can but tell you, and, the shape is and iconic. And you'll notice. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll notice though, throughout the course of TNG, they started to tweak what was the de- the detailing on the sides of the corridors because it was too metallic and too sterile like in season one and two they're pretty much exactly the same thing as you saw in like star trek 2 and star trek 3 and then they start to soften it with like gray like plastic gray paneling and stuff yeah. it gets better you know if they're like ah it's too yep totally yeah. but anyway yeah yeah but yeah the basic design of the enterprise itself the, the external design for sure the I exterior is yeah. awesome yeah the interior. Yeah, yeah i would agree the interior needs a bit of work <laughs> And the yeah, bridge yeah. is the bridge. I think needs some work too. Although I don't mm-hmm. hate the, this this bridge. Like I like that bridge. I don't I hate do, it either, but I don't. Like I do it. prefer. I actually, I, some people will hate me for this, but I actually really do prefer the newer Herman Zimmerman style bridges that come with like Star mm. Trek Five and Star Trek Six. I like that better. Sorry. Honestly, when you said some people will hate me for this, I was like, is he going to say the JJ verse bridge? Is he going to no, say that? because that has a that has no place in the, in that ship. That's a different universe, man. I'm not going to say. That. <laughs> Just, just the newer like uh, the newer A bridges, you know, seventeen oh one A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of like do, those. I do love engineering. Like the, yes, the 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 warp core. I like core the warp core. Yeah, and of course they call, it, they, they call it the intermix chamber in the movie. But you can yeah. actually they had like sophisticated like lighting going That's, on. With it's so glass. cool. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, it looks like it looks like matter and antimatter are mixing together in there. It's That's what very it looks cool. Like. Yeah, and of course, actual reactions happening. And, and of course, that set survived so for so long yeah it was redressed to tng and the warp core itself pretty much almost the same thing came back for voyager like it's pretty crazy mm. yep it looks very yeah. similar to the, uh, the, the, the the motion picture sets lasted all the way through voyager basically yeah in, i mean in one I'm, form or another and see that shows you how much money was actually put into these it's like they lasted they yeah. were pretty good yeah. sets you know yeah 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 crazy crazy artisanal construction <laughs> indeed but again yeah a lot of money on a big movie you know that had a lot of money and resources behind it that's that's they amortized their costs they certainly yeah. did yeah yeah um i wanted to ask you guys what you thought of the cast and their performances and how everybody looked this was the first time we'd seen these guys in almost a decade you know did you think everybody comported themselves well did you like the whole you know performances yeah, and whatnot. I I go back and forth on how much I always like some some of the performances, especially in the beginning. That's one thing that I think people level at this movie that is sort of more legitimate is that it can feel like a cold movie. And I understand why they say that for sure. Like everyone seems a little off. Everyone seems a little distant from each other. Um although I think that makes sense because they all have been separated. They aren't serving together mm-hmm. anymore. Um, right. And to be fair, so, I feel like that dynamic changes by the end of the film, and it absolutely yeah. does. I think I think that's I think that's that's why when people kind of take that to task, it's like right. But then by the end of the film, they are definitely like the cohesive unit again. As they yeah, warping be. off into yeah. the sunset, like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. yeah. 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 yeah, 
they're they are themselves though. I mean that scene where I think, so. I think so. Kirk is chewing when McCoy is chewing Kirk out is it's, very is classic. McCoy yeah. is spot yeah. on in every moment. But, yeah, McCoy is McCoy. I mean, let's just face yeah. it. I, I he actually doesn't change. Think, I actually think he's even more McCoy than normal in this one. <laughs> like when he beams <laughs> yeah. aboard. Well, yeah. Let's yeah, yeah exactly. oh my god. Exactly. This classic yeah. disco medallion McCoy. Oh yeah, maybe. disco McCoy. Yeah. It's, it's he was living in a commune. They pulled him out of a commune. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. But you know, McCoy, it's entirely possible. That's exactly ah, where he was. Ah. Um, can I tell you, though, when I, I saw this for the screening a couple months ago that Fathom mm-hmm. did, mm-hmm. no one got more applause and laughs during the movie than DeForest Kelly. Oh. Good. He has so, really he has so, so many great lines. Yeah. Well, I love her is like, uh, you know, then they and even, you know, everything about he doesn't like the new sick bay. It's like working in a damn computer center, you know, yeah. nothing's good for him. It's so it's so great. Fuck, you haven't changed a bit. You're just as warm and sociable as ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it makes, of course, perfect sense that Spock is very standoffish because he was just attempting to purge all emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then was basically told now nah, you've you know now you failed and here's there's a reason for it go find it so get out you know like basically yep, yep, by totally. a high, like a by a high vulcan you know priestess or whatever and it's like all right i guess so. the one thing that i sort of dislike or that rubs me the wrong way a little bit is kirk in the beginning of the film um yeah i get that he's pretty he's pretty jerky he's well he's like depressed the first yeah, like half of the film because the, the film is also quite slow and the so so the whole and he's yeah. the stars who are watching him be mean but it's out of but you look at him and he has these like it's like dead look in his eyes like he has no meaning True. and purpose anymore you know and so his his actions are it's like I kind of understand why he's doing it but it seems like it's coming from a bad place and well, it just well, quite tells him he's obsessive yeah like he finally realized he screwed up and he was trying to you know get his life back basically i guess i just it, he comes across as like yeah. he's depressed yeah but he's a dark character yeah yeah he's yeah. definitely like this this promotion to being an admiral really does not agree with him you know he's yeah. very unhappy with and, it and, he, and he's very pet yeah. he's petty about it like his he is very oh yeah he ruins decker's career yeah. oh he does yeah he's absolutely like, he's like make no mistake they were like they were, if they if decker had come back from that mission decker's career was compromised after that there's no way that was a vote total vote of no confidence that he <laughs> oh yeah yeah no it's, it's at true the 11th hour it's at true. the 11th hour his ship is taken away from him you know what i mean like yeah mm-hmm. no kirk is very self and when you see the doors after mccoy chews him out and he leaves and the doors close on kirk's face like you just he's brooding see, like, yeah yeah like he's you know He's not, he's not in a good place, and then no. that's one of the reasons. That's one of the areas, by the way, in the movie where I think the the rushed nature of it shows up because, like, all of a sudden Spock shows up, the Enterprise goes into warp speed, and then Kirk snaps back to being to being the Kirk of the original series. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, which is like a little he never quite low, he, Yeah, yeah, he never quite finishes his arc. I don't think. But I think he's Shatner is very good in the film. I think it's a very restrained performance for William Shatner. Uh, it's Leonard's movie though and he does a beautiful job mm. definitely car- carrying several different kinds of emotional states mm-hmm. what do we think of us uh, like the new some of the new people then like Ilea is an interesting character I'm not sure like I feel like we should have learned more about her so you can tell this used to be a character that was developed for the TV show that was a boy mm-hmm. I'd like to have learned more because they basically do this thing there's a few more deleted scenes that give you a little bit more but not a ton you know that little thing where she's like, "Oh, my oath of celibacy is on record," and it's like, "What? 
why is that right like we're, right. we're supposed it's to so because out of nowhere we don't we don't know who why that's the thing like at all we're just like oh deltons okay because of course that's a new species <laughs> as they're like you know they're they're expanding the star trek universe so we've, we've never heard of the deltons before and then there's that whole oh i would never take advantage of an immature like sexually immature <laughs> species and that is i mean Without more background, and even with some background, honestly, let's face it, that's the sev- that's the kind of skeezy 70s gene that came out in other projects, you know? That's him being like, <laughs> you know, like, look at this hot little bald lady, like, but she's, you know, so that's crazy. Mm. Anyway, it's, uh, I can't remember uh, the that series of articles that your friend Brian, Brian did about the 70s gene projects are kind of enlightening as to like where this comes from you know this is very this is a gene thing yeah this is a very yeah genes genes we can get into the novelization too because no, the, the novelization the, is the novelization bonkers. is high is, and is very sexual to some mm-hmm. degree um, it's bonkers yeah 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 <laughs> But that's that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, that's um, a whole other discussion. Maybe we anyway. should do a yeah. podcast in which we do a dramatic reading. <laughs> oh my god! You have, I mean, if for people who don't know about the novelization, let's just say it involves things like, um, oh Jesus, what is it like? Like sex coaches, right? And and all kinds of stuff like. Well, he, they mentioned certain things in passing. Yeah, they don't really yeah. get into it. No, no, no. Um, but it's just like these are things now. And, but in the yeah. novelization, Decker has sex with the probe. That's right. And, you know, what's funny is if you look at the movie, there are definitely some, like, he definitely has, like, some long glances at the Aelia probe. Mm, He's got some, like, you know, some horndog eyes for her. Which, I mean, mean, like, I mean, it's understandable, but at the same time, like, yo, that's not actually Aelia. Don't do that. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, we could talk about Decker a little bit. Yeah, Decker. You you know, it's unfortunate, of course, the whole thing's tainted by the actor's bad Ray behavior years yeah, later, yeah, yeah which is yeah, a really yeah. unfortunate really yeah. unfortunate. Yes, but it is. but anyway uh but it, going back to him you know his performance in the movie yeah he i felt like he was kind of a bland character decker he was they didn't give him enough of a background i don't think like he gets no. in gene's novelization you learn a lot more about decker to the point where you kind of understand why he makes the decision he makes at the end sure well, and and also, I believe in the novelization they bring up that he is actually the son of Commodore Decker from yes. from the yeah. uh, Doomsday Machine, machine yeah. right? Yep, 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 definitely. Yeah, which again would have been helpful. I mean, like they could have left that in the movie of like the whole. All they had to do was put a little line about like, oh yeah, you know, I was with you know your your father, yeah, whatever, yada yada, boom, done. Yeah, you know, it yeah. wouldn't have it wouldn't have like it wouldn't have mattered to anyone who was like new to the watching the movie, and it would have been great. Yep, to people who to uh, the fans. Although going back to what we said earlier about how a movie like this would never be made ever again, uh, in terms of the beat you over the head, blue milk references and everything all the time, <laughs> I really yep. appreciate how restrained this movie is. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So like, restrained. They, they, they could have gone so over the top with stuff, and they didn't. Well, they didn't want to. They they were very conscious of, of making. They, they were scared that they could not get Star Trek to graduate from being a, a 1960s TV series mm. into a major feature. Which mm. again is such a funny like mindset today. They'd be Absolutely. all about that. Yeah. shove yeah. it down there. Like, see what yeah. happens. Just make but, it happen. You know. No, but no one had made. No one had tried to. I mean, right. Batman had been made into a 
you know, this TV series had been made into a cheapy movie and there'd been a couple other examples of it like that, but like nobody had tried to make a giant feature film out of what was essentially a failed network television series. That's right. The 1960s. Yep. So they were scared to death and to the point where like they didn't, <clears throat> pardon me, they didn't want a whole lot of association with the series. At one point they were not like when Goldsmith took the gig, he was like, I'll do the job because but I don't want to be saddled with the original series theme. Mm-hmm. And initially, the, the studio was like, yeah, that's fine, but, but there's not going to be any real association with the series. And then Goldsmith himself thought about it. and was like, that's kind of ridiculous, actually. So that's why it's in there a couple of times. Like when Kirk does his captain's log, you hear, yeah, they work it in. Na, 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 na. But they were very conscious about staying, keeping as much distance from the series as possible. So it's not a surprise that they did not refer to Matt Decker at all. Right, right. It's not a surprise. It's just sort of a bummer. Right. <laughs> so I think... One amusing distance that we should talk about that is sort of controversial also. Some people really like these. A lot of people don't. Is the new uniforms, yep. huh? How about those mm-hmm. uniforms? <laughs> Space pajamas? Yeah. Oof. Beige. Oh, they're just terrible. Kirk's, it, well, yeah, like Kirk's that, Admiral's uniform. That's yeah, a good that one one's, I like. that one's yeah. pretty nice. The other ones are Everything weird. else reeks of the 70s, like color palette. Yeah, it does. And, and the fabric yeah. looks super thin because there's, especially like some early scenes with pe- where there's crewmen all over the place, um, like servicing the ship. You just, I th- I'm just going to say you can discern a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of very um, unflattering shots of Stephen Collins in this movie, too. <laughs> that, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it's kind yeah. of a bummer because, I mean, in theory, they actually did a bunch of research and talked with like people about like, well, what would you need to be like sort of uh, practical in like space, you know, space service, like when you're out there. And these are supposed to be based on discussions they had with space scientists and sort of futurists and some other people at the time, you know, and they were like, yeah, you'd want it to be like a, you know, like a space onesie that's easy to like work in and like change and yada yada it's like all right yeah yeah i remember reading i think shatner saying at one point like it was very difficult to sit down in some of those uniforms and like, you know it's I, funny that it would get that never changes around certain apparently. really uncomfortable areas <laughs> ask the discovery cast apparently that never changes <laughs> yeah oh they're to, what they wear to look that, good thing, on, that that is so unforgiving that that's discovery so that unforgiving yeah. Oh, yeah to look good on screen apparently it's got to be pretty gnarly let's just say yeah. that Unless yeah. you have a monster maroon on you, that's about it. Yeah, those are forgiving. The those are forgiving. Mm-hmm. They're also There's seem a lot like of they're layers. hot. There's a lot of layers. Yeah. They seem like they're hot. Yes. So that's yeah. another yeah. flip side to yeah. it. But yeah, yeah. So the TMP uniforms were a one and done kind of a deal. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the first thing that they decided to get rid of when they went to do the Wrath of Khan. I was like, yeah, those uniforms gotta go. Yeah, space well, pajamas and, with uh, belly warmers. Yeah, there's they're 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 so dated it would have been impossible to take it seriously if they'd if they'd kept them. Yeah. yeah. Those belts, by the way, are supposed to be scanning devices that monitor your metabolism and mm-hmm. your other medical vital yeah. signs. Yeah. Yep. It's a Fitbit, basically, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a cool idea for the It's a cool idea. Kirk is also yeah, wearing I, I, a watch type thingy. That's the, the that's the communicator. That's yeah. that's what they were going to go with for a communicator. But I guess the fans, I, I forget why they pushed back on that. But oh. they, I think they felt like they wanted to go back. Maybe that was a decision. Maybe Harv Bennett made that, that to go back to yeah. more of a, a yeah. Because see, see again, that was them attempting to project forward and look at things and go, okay, well, they 
they they should get smaller, right? Like time has moved on. Mm-hmm. We know things get smaller. Like okay, so now to make it convenient, it's on your wrist instead of needing to like be a discrete thing you put on a belt and pull out, you know, and flip right. it open. And in that in that sense, it makes a lot of you know it makes sense, right? Like yeah. okay, sure, it did. It that's did. a that's a logical evolution of like a personal communication device. Um, it just doesn't it just isn't iconic. It's not like what everyone has you know has come to like think of as Star Trek. So out that went <laughs> yeah okay so i wanted to talk about the the film's legacy mm-hmm. yes by all means definitely so there's um if you watch the dvd commentary of uh undiscovered country N- nicholas meyer talks about adding to the canon and, and and adding to the lore of star trek and when there's the klingon blood scene where it's like the floating pepto-bismol he said, yeah, this, this was something I added to the franchise, that the Klingons have pink blood, and now it's it's there forever. And it isn't. That's the only time they have pink blood. It's been ignored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they never have pink blood bad. ever again. And the whole reason they did that was because of the uh, the Colonel West, like, Scooby-Doo subplot that got pulled out of the theatrical edition and then got put back into yep. The, yep. the DVD. Um, so it's kind of pointless. Anyway, so there are some really important things in motion picture that I um, – do add to the canon that some ways I don't think that motion picture gets credit for its uh, sure its influence and the the biggest one is of course the Goldsmith score that we already talked about mm-hmm. the Star Trek March and then the Klingon theme uh, this is the first time we see Klingons with the more elaborate makeup which would get yep. kind of finalized as to what it would become forever in Star Trek 3 right. uh, the the nature and Brian I think you mentioned it passingly that the Ilea Decker dynamic is basically what the Troy Riker dynamic would become in mm-hmm. TNG of the mysterious telepathic alien lady and the um, traditional American figure of masculinity. And then it's got to be some kind of fantasy that Roddenberry had that he projected. Oh, I'm sure. Into these, <laughs> yeah. Right. The idea of a woman who can read your mind, you know. Uh, uh, right. Yep. Then Ugh. the other big one is I think this is the first one where they say that uh, San Francisco is the home of Starfleet Academy. I think that's where that idea was introduced. Hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't know if it was ever mentioned as in a line, but the dedication plaque on the bridge of the original series says USS Enterprise, Starship class, San Francisco, California. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Although, right? But of course, this is the first time we ever see Starfleet Command. Yes. It is because, of course, in TOS they never go, never go back to Earth. So mm-hmm. this is the very first right. time we saw that what the 23rd century of Earth looked like. So that's a huge deal. Yeah, we get a glimpse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, um, so I, uh, I went to this lecture about the history of Silicon Valley like a month ago, and Stanford mm-hmm. University was basically R and D for for the Defense Department during the Cold War. And so it kind of makes sense that they would project that that this is where. This uh, futuristic Navy will have its headquarters is where we have all this current advancement in technology during the Cold War. So I think it, it kind of fits in well with uh, the original series at least being an analogy for the Cold War. So that mm. was a, 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 a nice detail for them to introduce here. And, of course, that's something that, that gets talked about all the time now. I mean, in Answer Darkness, they go back to it um, with the quote-unquote con crashing into san francisco and then the yeah. other thing is the colonar ritual 
Oh, which yeah. gets mentioned mm-hmm. several times. It gets mentioned in 2009. And yep. Janeway talks about going to Tuvok's daughter's Kolinar ritual. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Which seems like an interesting way to recognize losing your emotion is to invite your friend to come take part of it like it's a birthday or a bar mitzvah. Right? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's like a bar mitzvah, weird. yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I uh, again, it, it may may not get as much love as, as Wrath of Khan or Voyage Home, but the impact that it had on the franchise is very, very strong. Yeah. Oh, no no question. And I think you mentioned it in passing, but that the Klingons themselves, obviously, we, even though obviously there's been some tweaks with Discovery and whatnot, it's largely remained that look for the past 40 years. Sure, the, yeah. Although they are much more alien looking in the motion yes, picture. Yes, I actually really them, like how they look in the motion picture. Yeah, they they simplified the makeup from like starting with Search for Spock. Yep. And I think that carried forward with TNG and the other shows because it's just too much to deal with every day. They had to do something to like narrow it down. But if you look at those, if you look at the Klingons and TMP, they've got like their spines are much more ridged. Um, yeah, goes to the back of their the, head. Yeah, yeah, and just the, the facial makeup alone is just much more sophisticated and made them look a little more unusual. Mm. And shout out to Mark Leonard playing his third species. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's mm-hmm. Mark Leonard playing the Klingon mm-hmm. captain. Yeah, which if you, if you know to look, you'll you could see him in it. But otherwise, he's pretty well mm-hmm. hidden. It's pretty hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one one other little detail though that did not become part of the canon. Or, or mm-hmm. kind of is they introduce the idea that if you go to warp in a solar system, it can cause this problem because mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. this the sun's gravity yeah. well. And this well, and is it's some... funny because they do keep that for most of TNG. They discuss that like they do. They just follow that as a protocol without saying it outright. Mm. Where where this has gotten lost is the newest stuff. Discovery uh, likes to just pop in, and that was kind of a visual effect thing that got started in the JJ. Yeah. You know, where they, they warp and, exactly to where they're going. They're exactly where they need. And that's a problem. I mean, that's, li- that's literally like a problem. <laughs> it causes a problem. <laughs> it causes a problem for them in actually in, in the movies and in discovery, there are actual problems that they like drop right into. And then they're like, Oh yep. shit, we just dropped right into something. Uh-huh. And it's like, right. That's why like in TNG and all those kinds of things, they go to impulse when they get near a solar system. Like they sure. can't, you can't like, so uh, there, there have been exceptions. There are exceptions, but, but in general, they did follow that kind of as a rule of thumb yeah. through so most of the, a, a very, yeah, a very notable exception is in Star Trek for the voyage home where, yes, indeed. where they go, yep. they go to warp, not just in a solar system, but while they're still inside <laughs> but, the earth's atmosphere. Yep. That's cr- <laughs> That seems like, yeah, that yep. seems like you might rip away the atmosphere or something. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Like probably. that seems like, yeah really a problem <laughs> and, and, and in three the enterprise warps away from space dock that's right which oh, is, yeah, seems right. inappropriate yeah. as well yeah yeah it's okay though it was exciting because <laughs> yeah. they didn't create any wormholes uh, exactly <laughs> and then yeah. one random asteroid gets caught in it that's a weird scene that is a weird why scene. did they do that well I think it was, you know, it's that whole to show how crazy and new and untested, like, the new warp engines are. The Enterprise was, yeah. yeah. I guess. I just felt like it was a little drawn out. Well, you know, this is one of those funny things that that comes up all the time if you you sort of, like, look at, you know, how things are supposed to work. They change their minds all the time about what the appropriate intermix ratio is. Uh Uh-huh. Because, like, okay, you would, in theory... And they they talk about different ratios for, you know, matter to antimatter. 
which doesn't make a lot of sense because you kind of need it to be one-to-one so they annihilate each other and create this massive energy, Mm -hmm. right? They should, like, because in theory, if you had more matter to antimatter, wouldn't you just have extra matter left over that never got annihilated by the antimatter, right? Because it's like one, anyway, it never makes a lot of sense. But here they talk about the intermix ratio being wrong. And that's brought up actually quite a few times, you know, as like Techno Babble and different series. And TNG, it's a lot, yeah. And TNG, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot in TMP, too. It's a lot. And then what's funny is they actually explicitly bring it up as a test question for Wesley in Coming of Age. Oh, interesting. And and that's the one that his buddy Mendon or no, Mendoc, right? Um, Mordoc. Mordoc. Mordok, Mordok, thank you. Mendon is his like the guy with cousin, the vape. Is his cousin that comes yeah, to either the guy with the vape. Guy, yeah. yeah, the guy with the vape. Yeah, <laughs> he gets tripped up because it's because Wesley tells him, "Oh, it's a, it's a trick question. There is only one correct ratio, one to one." So, eh, gay technology? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, that that so yeah, that idea kind of even starts here of like Spock has to help them rebalance, you know, their engines and like what the right fuel ratio is and all that stuff that must have made scotty feel like such a schmuck <laughs> i know right like he can't figure this out Vulcan but show up. spot comes on boards and plays with yeah, some test tubes and so stuff weird. and like that's it they, they yeah. do a couple that they do that a couple times where a couple of characters solve other people's problems in a weird way yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just to show what a badass scientist Spock is, right? He's like, right, oh, I got, right. I got this. Yeah, like, but what about Scotty? I know. Scotty should definitely he, know. Yeah, he doesn't have much to considering, do with film. Considering both Scotty and Decker were were basically tearing the Enterprise apart and rebuilding it together, like, yes, he should absolutely yeah. know. And you also <laughs> have to remember, Scotty is not second build in this movie. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. He's like fourth or something. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Although you're you're right though. He's on. He's in the movie the least. Jimmy doing. He's barely mm-hmm. in the movie. He is. And they a, cut out. Kind of they bummer. cut out one of the scenes he was in too. Hmm. What's Two the scene? Scenes. I don't remember. One of them is when I, I don't. I, I don't know if you remember when Kirk tells Chapel that he needs Spock on the bridge, and Kirk goes to the com and he goes, uh, "Mr. Checker, where is Commander Decker?" And he says, "They are in engineering, sir." And there was a scene there where they oh, cut right. to, yes, to, yes, yes. to, mm-hmm. to Scotty, Decker, and Ilya, and they have this whole exchange where right. Scotty Sc- basically Scotty, is like really stuff. Yeah, yeah. Scotty basically says, "If I were a functioning logically uh, machine, I would show you the business end of a scrap metal compactor." He tells that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, see, so poor they Scotty. Cut that out. He cut they cut that out, yeah. and then they cut out. I think it's in. It's not in the theatrical cut where they. When he calls, when Kirk calls engineering as they're getting toward the, the Vija probe, and when they get toward the, you know, where the Voyager is, and he tells Scotty to prepare to execute a certain Starfleet order. Yes, that's right. Which is essentially Scotty was going to press a button that was going to just blow the ship up. There was that's not going right. to be any, no computer countdown, no nothing. Like they were going to get close to Vija's brain area, and if they didn't figure out how to end, you know, get get Vija what it needed, they were just going to blow the Enterprise up and figure they would damage Vija enough to where it would be destroyed. Yeah, or just that's hope right. that and it that would. was cut too. And that was cut too. That's in yeah. the director's cut. Mm-hmm. That's in the, so yeah. So Jimmy got he lost a couple of scenes because yeah, he's mostly down in the engine room the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, there, there's also a moment where Spock very heartlessly refers to him as quote the engineer unquote. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. the engineer. He can't even Spock, say Spock Mr. is very Scott. Vulcan in this movie. Yeah, well, that oh, was Spock earlier in the film, right before he's gone on his emotional journey. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was early. He does call him Mr. Scott at the end of the movie. Oh, okay. says, unnecessary, Mr. Scott. My task on Vulcan is completed. Yeah. 
It's nice at the end though when they gather everybody on the bridge. It was ne- Chapel it was, shows it up, was Scotty necessary. shows yeah. up. You know, mm-hmm. send everybody off. And I do like McCoy talks about delivering a baby. It's, it's fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Very Star Trek. It's a very it, yeah. It's a very Star Trek ending. Yeah. I, I do have to say I like Scotty's um, uh, uniform, which I refer to as like the Reese's wrapper uniform. Oh, the radiation suits. The mean? like black cowl thing that they have. Oh yes, right. I think it looks yep. like a wrapper from a Reese's candy. It does, it does gets ruffled that way. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I can think uh-huh. of, and I see it every time. I like the radiation suit, so I like the idea of having those radiation yeah, suits. Yeah, it's very practical, and that was one mm. thing they it did. Is, they and... did bring back for uh, yeah, yeah, very, that's very right. Memorable because were... Spock goes yeah, yeah, that... in without wearing the radiation suit because he didn't have time. Right. right, right, and like, but they abandoned that again once they get into the, into TNG. Like, they just completely disregarded that. Because let's, let's face it, if you were working down in areas like that, you would need protection of some sort. You wouldn't just be walking around Absolutely. in your standard uniform. Yeah, you know. Oh, and another fun costumey thing though that. I thought was nice that I just remembered is they they brought back field jackets which we you know uh-huh, at, at this did, point yeah. at this yeah. point in time hadn't been used since the cage, the cage that's actually right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah and they're very cage esque yeah. I like them they are um, they are. I, th- I think yeah, they, they actually they look, good. they look good they look better than the, than the pajamas underneath you know I agree. and mm. and they're functional what's cool is there's there's like if you look at them they they have like two really big pouches for stuff and it's like yeah right because you know people. I like, you know, they pretend they don't need pockets, but yes, people need pockets like, <laughs> for their equipment, you know? In right, the future, right. we'll have evolved beyond the need for pockets. Uh, beyond the need for pockets. <laughs> Just like we'll have evolved beyond the need for zippers, too, according to Gene. Okay, yeah. thanks, Gene. Yeah, thanks, Gene. And hey, women are already putting up with that. Just let me, let me let you, and it's not going well. We hate it. Please give us pockets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's ridiculous how many pants, like their pants, like my wife and I will basically put on jeans and I'll look over and she'll be like, yeah, but. The, these have have no real pockets like of any use to them. yeah they'll like, be like an inch deep yeah and it's like i can't i can't put myself on in this i can't nope. like i'm like yeah what the, in the, the hell other, is the point of that the other problem there so goofy is yeah. women will frequently put their cell phone in their bra which is the absolute yes. worst place a woman can put something that emits radiation of course it's not it's a terrible mm-hmm. idea but you know what yep. there's no hold there's no they, they don't have a holder like there's got they've got nothing else to hold it it's stupid yep. so yeah we need to no, kids, zippers really do are fine, and there's nothing wrong with them continuing <laughs> into the like you know next couple centuries. It's fine. That's right. That's right. It's really like if it ain't broke, right? You know. That's right. Yeah. So, well, is is that covered, or is there anything else we want to say? Yeah, I just want to mention one more thing. Um, this movie's final legacy maybe has not been completely written yet. Hmm. They are in the process. Although there has still not been an official announcement of rebuilding the movie in 4K, let's hmm. hope. Yeah, which would require basically re- rebuilding the movie from almost from scratch in terms of rescanning the film and putting new, you know, cleaning it up, upgrading the effects and and whatnot. And this would be the director's edition that they did in early 2000, which we did not really get into in this chat. Yeah, but that would be the but that would be where they would go with that and that would be done by the same people who did it originally Darren Docterman and Mike Medicino and David Fine so hopefully we'll hear something about that soon it would be lovely if we heard about it on the 40th anniversary itself yeah, that, that would be very nice oh, that would be amazing but, if they do that maybe cool yeah because if there's one Star Trek movie that really needs like a full you know triple A fantastic upgrade it's this one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so because, like we discussed, this is the this is one of the only Star Trek movies that really had the full 
thrust of the, the you know of, of the studio behind it and the full yep. budget for it so yep it could look fantastic actually yep. yeah absolutely all right guys i think we've covered everything i hope we've inspired some people to go back and rewatch star trek the motion picture yes please yeah, do please do and you know what even even the little cheats like Kayla fast forwarding a few things, you know what? That's probably okay. I, I, I think I think that's all right because because there are so many good moments in here. Don't let its pacing scare you. Yeah, please. Don't. The movie has the movie has a lot to offer. It does. And it does. And if you can watch the director's edition, which is harder because it's only in standard def right now, and it's a little bit harder to find. Well, on digital, it's, you can still find it too. Yeah. But it's only in standard F and it doesn't hold up quite as well the larger you look at it, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. But it's a far superior version But the, the pacing film. is much better. They, yeah, they've done a good job with that. And so yeah. that's the one to watch if you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Good call. All right, everybody. Well, right. thank you for listening. Um, we are going to be back sooner than normal. We're going to do a special uh, memorial edition of the shuttle pod next week to celebrate right. the career and life of Dorothy Fontana. Yes. The sad news is that just broke what yesterday. Right? Yeah. As we're recording this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we want to be sure to address that. So. Yes. We're going to, we're not forgetting about Dorothy. Not at all. Quite, quite the opposite. So uh, we'll be back next week to talk about her. Yes, indeed. All right, everybody. All right. Well, once again, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Take Bye care. everybody. Bye guys. Bye everybody. Bye.